Hello, fellow humans. You're listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, and I'm Janine Strong. Dr. Stephanie Seneff is with us again, and it's always a joy to have her on. She is a consummate researcher and dot connector, and I love our conversations. All of our conversations are timeless, by the way, and I believe this is maybe the, I didn't check, but I think it's the ninth time she's been on. They're all relevant and they're all timeless. So if you're interested in more from Stephanie, please go to therealjanine.com archives. Once again, just a quick bio for Stephanie. She is a senior research scientist at MIT. And since 2008, she has focused her research interests on the impact of nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins on human health, especially the role of glyphosate. She has been intensely researching connections between toxins and COVID-19, and I believe today our main focus is going to be around deuterium, which many of you may not have even heard of. So this will be exciting and we'll all learn a lot. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome back. So great to be here again. It feels like old friends. <laughs> I know, I know, I know that, you know, that's actually one of the things that I love about doing the podcast is I have met so many, what I would say from my soul family, you know, so many people right. that it, it's just such it's a delight. Great, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. been for me too, just in my work, the people that I've met have been so interesting and just, you know, I just realized a single a person just sending me an email and just catching my eye and then running with it. And deuterium was like that because I got a, an email from Laszlo Boros. He's a, a professor. He's in Hungary. He was trained mm. at the Zent Georgi Institute in Hungary. So he's got that Eastern European background, which is so interesting because they, they're doing a lot of research over there that's, um, you know, more biophysics than biochemistry and oh, it's based okay. on water and all of this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, so they really understand the electromagnetic fields and sort of electrical energy in the body and all this. So, um, he introduced me to deuterium in December of 2019. And he just sent me an email saying, congratulations, that was a great paper. I wrote a paper with Greg Nye on, on water, you know, related to water and sulfate and glyphosate, my usual topics. But he liked my paper. And he said, oh, by the way, deuterium, basically. How do you know about deuterium? And it's like, no, I don't. So <laughs> it really opened my eyes because it was so perfect as far as when I realized the enzymes or the proteins that are involved in managing deuterium in the body are the same proteins that are being wrecked by glyphosate. That's why it became very, very interesting. Uh, to me. So just uh -huh. meeting with this guy. And now he, he and I correspond a lot now. So he knows a lot about deuterium and he's helped me figure that out. It's, it's really, really fascinating. And we need to get people aware because I think most people, their eyes glaze over. And I find people don't, they say, no, don't talk about deuterium. It's too hard. You know, like they don't want to know about it. They don't so, think it's important. How could it be important if nobody's talking about it? You know, there's kind of a catch 22. <laughs> well, that sounds like, um, oh gosh, what was, who was I listening? Oh, um, Del Bigtree did an interview with, um, oh, who's that scientist uh, that everybody knows? Um, he's on TV all the time. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> oh, dear. yeah. Senior moment. But he, but what he was, what this guy was saying was that, you know, if there's a consensus in the scientific community, then that's all you need. And, you know, and, and so differing points of view or things that people haven't heard of, you, you know, it, it was just, it was, it was one of those, um, I would call opinions that, um, uh -huh you know, most of us would not agree with just because there's a consensus, like, like right. there was the science there, is settled, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's that. And in fact, I think that's the term he used. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we know for the last three years with, uh, with COVID, uh, yes. you know, that that the science wasn't settled. And just because there was a consensus doesn't mean it was true at all. I know. That's what's amazing, isn't it? When you hear it all over from the media, you think it must be true. And, and you really have, it takes a certain kind of strong thinking person to say, you know, maybe that's not true, even though everyone's telling me that's what the case is, you know, to say, to right. question it. I, I always want to go back to the science and find the papers and, and answer the question for myself. Do I believe this? You know, when someone says something that I find suspicious, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I don't just go for it. I have to go dig into the literature to see if it makes sense to me. But, you know, a lot of people don't have the the inclination to do or the understanding right. to do something it like that. It takes work. It takes a lot of work. It does. And, you know, it's it took me a long time to wrap my brain around how can 
all of these the, the media and the all the the all of these medical people all around the world be in lockstep on this. I mean, I know, I you know? know, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it really is, and it, it yeah. makes you realize that um, th- this has been in the works for a long, long time. It didn't just like all of a sudden overnight. I Everybody's know. doing the exact same thing. They're saying the exact same thing. It's crazy. It is amazing how easy it is to influence a society to sort of all step step in lockstep and not mm-hmm. question the agenda and just go ahead with it and accept it. I mean, all of that. And we have a lot of people who aren't, thank God, because those oh, people know. are really bringing awareness to the rest of them. And I hope that there's going to be a great awakening in the next year or two. I really feel it's on edge. I feel like it's coming, you know. I think it's coming too. I think it's coming too. Um, there are a lot of people who are very influential, like we were talking about Bobby Kennedy, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, to me, just what's most important with him, uh, his candidacy is that he has a platform now where he can't be silenced. And, I know. And he I sure hope they'll do the a truth. debate, you know, they're oh, trying I know. to get out of doing be? a debate. I know. <laughs> that just seems so ridiculous that, that the candidates can't debate each other. I know. I know. Yes. Yeah. I, and I just, I think he's, he just seems so honest I love and him. authentic. So and no, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, he's wonderful. I've read oh, his is. book, which is really yep. amazing. Yes, really Anthony Fauci. Yes, yes. So really he's good. so articulate too. And he did his campaign speech ad lib. It looked like he wasn't even hardly even had notes. You know, he was just talking and he did a beautiful job. We were mesmerized the whole time. Yeah. I saw an interview. Uh, it was really good. It was all oh gosh, I can't believe I remembered it. It was um the uh podcast was all in. And uh-huh. I think there were there were three or four gentlemen who are but they're they're some are conservative some are more liberal and um it was two hours i didn't think i was going to watch listen to the whole thing but it was i i it was fascinating and uh-huh. um you know the questions that they asked bobby kennedy and mm. and you know and and oftentimes he would say not often but um he would say you know i don't know enough about that i i have yes. to research that you that's know? so and I, great so many yes. people are afraid to admit they don't know and then they'll make something up which is just ridiculous yeah i always just admit i don't know when i don't know yeah and i try to know as much as i can so <laughs> right seriously reading all the time <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to ask, you know, with the deuterium, um, yes. does structured water, is that yes. a, a factor? Okay. All right. It is, All right. Yes. So take it away. Dive in. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to yeah. know where to begin around it. But um, first of all, what is deuterium? It's it's a heavy isotope of hydrogen. Okay. So hydrogen is the most common atom in the universe. Um, and it's the, the guy on the upper left corner of the periodic chart. It's got one proton and one new, uh, electron. And that's it. It's a very tiny atom. You know, the chart has uh, all the different atoms with different increasing numbers of protons and electrons as you go up the chart, right. get up to uranium, it's got a lot, you know, it's a heavy, very heavy atom. Um, but hydrogen is the tiniest one. And it's, of course, it's the most common by far atom in the body. Right. Hydrogen. Yeah. So uh, deuterium is a natural isotope of hydrogen. So it's also in the body. It's present at a ratio to hydrogen. that's quite small. It's like 159 parts per million. So for every million hydrogen atoms, there are only 159 deuterium atoms, which sort of oh, makes you wow. in um, 160, sorry, I think it's 166. I have that a little bit wrong. Um, it's it's somewhere around 150, a little over okay. 150. So uh, if, in, it's, if it's a heavy water. isotope of hydrogen, then there must be something added onto it. Yes, it has an extra neutron. An extra neutron, okay. And the neutron is is not charged, but it's the same weight essentially as a proton. So it's twice as heavy as hydrogen. Oh, twice as heavy. Okay. And it also has the one electron, and it goes wherever hydrogen goes. So you can have a, a molecule that normally would have a hydrogen sitting on a carbon atom, because a lot of the carbohydrates, you know, it's carbon, hydrogen, right? Carbohydrate. So uh, carbon and hydrogen are uh, very common in the body. Carbon, of course, is essential to life, right? That's the mm-hmm. organic. It's mm-hmm. organic. It's got carbon um, right. to hydrogen. Usually that's almost a definition of organic. So right. um, hydrogens are, many of them are attached to the carbon atoms in the molecules in our body. And, um, but you could just have a deuterium randomly anywhere instead of hydrogen, wherever hydrogen could be, deuterium could be there too. So there okay. deuterium atoms are just kind of scattered all over the place in your body, uh, hmm. bound to various molecules. And um, 
but they have influence that because they behave very differently from hydrogen biochemically and biophysically. If there is a deuterium sitting there on a molecule and there's an enzyme that wants to take the hydrogen off, but it takes off the deuterium instead, it's all very different the way it works out, you know? So the deuterium is sort of sitting there misbehaving in a sense. It, it doesn't do the same thing the hydrogen does. And some, many enzymes uh, refuse to take the deuterium. It's like, okay, you've got deuterium, forget it. I'm not going near you. You know, I'm going to go to this other one that has hydrogen because I don't want deuterium. So mm. en enzymes are able to select um, the, the version of the molecule that doesn't have deuterium. And then they produce a product that becomes um, precious because it's guaranteed, not almost guaranteed, not to be deuterium. And, and the mitochondria care a lot about this. This is the, really the punchline. The okay. mitochondria... Uh, use something called the proton motive force. Proton motive force is the driving force that generates the ATP. So it's very important. What that means is protons moving, right? Motive is moving. Protons uh -huh. moving creates a force. And what happens is the, uh, the mitochondria pump protons into what's called the intermembrane space. The mitochondria mm -hmm. have a membrane that's a that's a space that has an outer membrane and an inner membrane. <laughs> you know, so right. the outside mm -hmm. of the mitochondria has this additional sort of space there's a there's a matrix which is inside the mitochondria and then there's this surrounding you know like tube. a double wall yeah double wall exactly that's perfect mm -hmm. an inner wall outer wall and so the mitochondria pump protons into that wall space and and give a put in a lot of protons so there's extra protons in the wall and reduced protons in the matrix and then the protons naturally want to come back because there's a gradient, you know, they want to come back and they come through these Christi, these little indentations, they come through the spot where there's all these ATPase pumps. There's thousands of them in every mitochondria. And the pumps are making ATP and they make the ATP because of those protons that are flowing through. Those are the force that's creating, cause the pump, causes the pump to go around and around and around. And that makes the energy that... Mm -hmm. uh, that is able to create the ATP from ADP, it adds a phosphate and makes this ATP, which is a, um, which is the energy currency of the right. cell. ATP. That's what, that's what gives us energy. That's what keeps us going. Right. Yes. And the mitochondria, of course, are very important. They need to be healthy. There's many, many mm -hmm. diseases that are associated with mitochondrial dysfunction, including cancer and uh, all the neuro neurodegenerative diseases, you know, I mean, lots and lots of diseases are associated almost in, in a sense, all diseases, I would say, uh, have at their basis um, dysfunctional mitochondria. There's mm -hmm. something wrong with the mitochondria. And what happens when they're not working well is that they spew out reactive oxygen species, ROS, which can, which can then cause DNA damage. So you can get DNA mutations. And when you get DNA mutations in the mitochondrial DNA, you get cancer. So the mitochondria don't want to be releasing this reactive oxygen, but the, but the uh, deuterium gums up the pump pumps. I like to think of it as like sugar in the gas tank. Ah, the, okay. the pumps really don't like the deuterium. It gets stuck in there and it causes it, it. You can see it causes the gears to sort of shut down. I mean, the, the enzyme can get completely broken. So you have to make a new one. I mean, it's um, and then, of course, it starts spewing out this oxygen because it's doing a lot with oxygen. Oxygen is sort of, um, you know, it's aerobic metabolism in mm -hmm, the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. Aerobic meaning oxygen, right? So right. there's a lot of oxygen in there. And, and the mitochondria know how to use that oxygen very nicely to add two hydrogens to it to make water. You know, right. it comes from mm -hmm. oxygen, O2, and then it breaks that apart, makes water molecules. And those water molecules have their hydrogens. They came from that intermembrane space. So they're going to be de depleted in deuterium because the, the ones inside the intermembrane space are depleted because of all this activity that goes around making sure that that's the case. And there are all these specialized enzymes that have tremendous skill to, uh, to reject deuterium. So they end up delivering uh, protons to the intermembrane space that are not deuterons. And that ends up with very low deuterium in that mitochondria, in the mitochondria in general, they have very low deuterium in their water because of all these enzymes, the support system that makes that happen. So do, okay. So I, I'm, what I think I'm kind of hearing is that we don't want deuterium. I mean, well, the here's the thing, deuterium and just needs to be separated into the right spots. So we don't want uh. deuterium in the mitochondria. Okay. But actually deuterium is helpful in the outer in the outside of the cell in the, the interstitial the interstitial or the yes. intercellular yeah okay right. fluid so, mm -hmm. Yeah the glue that holds it holds the body together you know outside the cells you have all that extracellular matrix um, 
And that's where all those sulfates are attached, you know, that, that uh, gel the water. So this all gets back to Gerald Pollack's work. Mm-hmm. And Gerald Pollack talks about gelled water and how it creates a battery. You've probably heard about, we've talked about that, I'm sure. Yes. And I had, I, I had you, you very kindly introduced me to him and, and I did have him on the podcast. So for, if people want to hear our conversation, um, Gerald Pollack's uh, on a previous podcast. Yes. And he's another person that I met many years ago um, that really influenced my thinking. So between Gerald, say Gerald Pollack and, and uh, Laszlo Boros were really important um, influence on me to, to, to direct my research in, in mm-hmm. a different direction from what I would have considered before that. I met Gerald even before I knew about glyphosate. So he, he goes way back. And I was really interested in structured water, gelled water, you mm-hmm. know, exclusion mm-hmm. zone water. That's all the same thing. Right. And then most of the body, you know, we're, we're mostly water. We have a lot of water in our body, but most of it is gelled. Right. The only water really that isn't gelled for the main part is the blood. The blood has to circulate, so it can't be gelled, right? Mm, that makes sense. And, and that makes it tricky. So what happens is that the, the, all the blood vessels are lined with this gelled water, and those sulfates that are sprinkling throughout the, blood, uh, the lining of the blood vessels, they, make, they turn the water into jello. They make it gelled. And the gel pushes protons out. It, pushes the, it becomes negatively charged, and it pushes protons out into the into the blood, if you will. So you've got this gel layer along the edge of the capillary, which is very slick. So the red blood cells can slide through almost effortlessly, the very low friction. You know, that's another important thing about the gel, but it's pushing out these protons. And I think the protons are getting gathered up by the cells and channeled along the cytoskeleton and delivered directly to the mitochondrial intermembrane space. This is theoretical. I might, mm-hmm. I, this is beyond what I've read about, but I think it makes a whole lot of sense. Gerald talked about the battery that's created, which of course is a source mm-hmm. of energy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he believes that battery fuels the cell. Well, exactly. How does it fuel the cell? I think it's because it provides those protons. And those protons are like an electric current that's, you know, piling up inside that intermembrane space and then being used to push, push back out at the ATPase pumps to make the ATP. So I think that that's an important source of the, of the protons in the intermembrane space. And they're going to be deuterium depleted because the gel holds on to the deuterium. That's an important point that the gel water the deuterium wants to stay in the gel. It's much less mobile than the okay. uh, protons are. So the protons, preferentially the protons leave and the deuterium becomes concentrated in the water that's in the gel. And of course, as a, as a corollary, the water in the blood has lower deuterium mm-hmm. than the water in the gel that's surrounding the blood vessels, if that makes sense to you. It's a separation yep. of the deuterium. So it piles into the gelled water and then there's lower deuterium in the, in the fluid water. And, um, and it's in the fluid water where a lot of the reactions take place. So there's, because um, the gel is exclusion zone. It doesn't let anything in. It becomes pure water. Okay. Sorry. So Let's back up. In, yeah. The enzymes are in the fluid water and that's where the reactions take place. Got it. Okay. Now I just, I had a thought because, um, all right. So you said that the, the gelled water, uh, the structured water lines the inside of the capillaries, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a correlation with the microclots? Yeah, well, the microclots, uh, yeah, they're a whole other story. I mean, there's, it relates to um, uh, prion proteins, you know, and right. folded proteins. Mm-hmm. And those. Right. And I actually am, I am suspecting that prion disease uh, and, and misfolded proteins in general are related to deuterium. And what I think is that they provide uh, a way to trap deuterium. So in other words, mm-hmm. when you don't have enough sulfate in your in your exclusion zone water, you know, lining all your blood vessels, uh, you have too much deuterium in the fluid water, you need to get it out. And a way to get it out is to trap it in one of these proteins that will misfold if it if there is too much deuterium. This is a theory of mine. It's a wild theory that I don't often talk about <laughs> because it's not sufficiently supported yet. It's so way out there. But I think I have I have a feeling really, you know, it's an intuition. Yep. Yep. That the um, that the misfolded proteins have a lot to do with deuterium. And what they're trying to do is to trap the deuterium because there's too much. So basically whenever there's too much deuterium, you're going to have huge problems. You need to get rid of it. If you're if your sulfated systems aren't working properly, you've got to find, have something else that can trap the deuterium. And you can use these uh, these proteins that when they get enough deuterium in them, 
um, that causes them, they have very different electro, you know, magnetic situation there. Like the deuterium is sufficiently different from the hydrogen. If there's enough of it, it could cause the, the forces are such that it could tend to fold into this, you know, these beta sheets, they're called, that could uh, potentially, I think, sort of, they come out of the water, they become like hydrophobic. Mm-hmm. And they, and they, I suspect that they trap deuterium. So they reduce the level of deuterium in the remaining water by virtue of taking it out. Okay. I'm suspecting that. And I don't have proof of that at all. That's just a suspicion that I have. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, those, um, I mean, the, the spike protein is a prion-like protein. And, um, and I think it's causing these blood clots by virtue of that. And whether right. it would and- cause more blood clots if you have excess deuterium in your blood is a possibility. So it could be that um, the consequences of glyphosate uh, causing you to have excess deuterium in your blood could make you more susceptible to the misfolding of the uh, spike protein. I think that's possible. Ah, so that's what I was going to ask is, so how, how do we end up with too much deuterium? So you're saying there's a connection with glyphosate. Absolutely. That's what gets really exciting in my oh, book. Because okay. It's just amazing um, to me because um, as I learned about how deuterium is managed in more detail, it immediately became clear to me that a lot of the enzymes that are extremely important for deuterium management are are suppressed by glyphosate. This is what I think is happening. Okay. Okay. Now, before you go on, just, I mean, I cannot imagine that, well, I have talked to people who still haven't heard of glyphosate, so... Okay, we should do. We I know. Should to do me, that. I, 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 I was shocked. I'm like, you, you don't know what glyphosate is. I know. So, I, so I are... didn't know what it was. You know, 12 years ago. So I shouldn't be so hard on these people. But it right. feels to me like everyone should know by now. I know. So yeah, a little background for those who don't know. Right. So glyphosate is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup, which is pervasive in 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 the on the globe, and especially in the United States. We use more per person than any other country in the world. Oh, our country loves glyphosate and, and we use it to make our food cheap. You know, we have these GMO Roundup ready crops, the corn, the soy, the canola, the sugar beets um, and the alfalfa. Those are those are the key ones that actually are engineered to resist glyphosate through a GMO technology. And that's the dominant GMO. You know, people people right. get hung up on non-GMO. But the problem is hmm. the non-GMO crops are also exposed to glyphosate because they spray many of them right before the harvest as a desiccant. And that includes right. the wheat, the oats, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, legumes, um, garbanzo mm-hmm. beans and chickpeas and lentils uh, and, and some nut uh, seed, uh, oil seed, nut, nuts, oil seeds. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, so, um, so a lot of different, um, a lot of foods that are not GMO are also contaminated. And they are some, some of the highest levels are showing up in those crops that are sprayed right before harvest. Right. So it's all over the food supply. The government doesn't care because they think it's safe. And, and the big message that they the how media can they think it's safe? I really think that they, myself. I mean, do you really think they think that? I mean, it's just like with the jabs, you know. Oh, it's safe and effective. Blah blah. They knew it it's wasn't incredible. safe. They knew. I don't know how they can pretend they still don't think it's it's dangerous because so many papers are coming out recently. It's really interesting to look at the history of studying glyphosate because. Um, when I first got involved with it, which was in 2012, when I heard a presentation by Professor Don Huber, he's another one who really influenced my thinking. Mm-hmm. And he gave this presentation in 2012 at a conference I was at, two-hour presentation on glyphosate. I walked into that room not knowing what glyphosate was, surprisingly. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I was curious, you know, and I was looking for autism. I was trying to figure out what is it that's causing the autism epidemic. And uh, and Don Huber laid it out. I mean, it was so perfect. I was so excited uh, with that talk because I had been studying autism for five years, you know, intensely for five years. I'd been oh, interested wow. in it forever. I, I mean, I remember seeing a show on TV when I was a kid, I think I was probably a teenager about these autistic kids. And I was so intrigued by it. And I remember thinking, there's something wrong with those kids. It's not just these refrigerator moms. Really, we're talking about how the mother didn't uh, give the child proper love. And that's why the child became autistic. And I didn't believe it. I thought it's got to be something. <laughs> yeah. You know, messing up yeah. There, there are plenty of, of uh, dysfunctional families that don't have autistic kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something physical. And there's so much wrong with those kids. Oh, my God. They have so I many know. problems, you know. I know. 
And um, so anyway, I, uh, I was looking for the answer. And then when he talked about, you know, chelating the, the minerals, I knew the autistic kids had issues with the minerals, you know, not, not handling them correctly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, of course, the gut problems, they have all these gut problems and glyphosate messes up the gut microbiome. Uh, they have uh, you have uh, glyphosate messes up the enzymes in the liver that detoxify other toxic chemicals, particularly fat soluble chemicals. So those become more toxic because the liver enzymes are impaired by the glyphosate. So there's just like there was so much that um, that he talked. And of course, the gut brain connection. He talked about all these things in his talk and he was talking about the soil microbiome and how that's messed up by the glyphosate. And the plants don't get enough nutrients because it disrupts the uptake of the minerals into the plants. And it all made sense to me. It made so much sense to me that I basically dropped everything else I was doing and started reading about glyphosate. But right at that same time, a paper had just come out. And that was sort of the first thing I read once I went back home and tried to figure out more. I came across Seralini's paper and he's a, he and the team in France were studying glyphosate. And they basically repeated an experiment that um, had been done by Monsanto in order to get uh, approval of glyphosate. Mm-hmm. He did the same experiment on the rats, you know, exposing them to a low level of glyphosate. Um, but he kept going. They went for three months and they said, OK, they de- declared victory. These rats have been exposed for three months to glyphosate. They're still fine. So glyphosate safe. And they quit. Mm-hmm. And so but he said, well, let's see what happens if we continue. You know, maybe this is a slow glyphosate a slow kill. I mean, that's how they've gotten around the regulatory process because it takes time. And well, so, and um, also, now tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding is, because I remember when I had my first organic garden and, and um, they said that it was it was safe for organic gardens. Luckily, I didn't use much. I just used a little spray bottle here and there to kill some weeds. But um, that, you know, they said that glyphosate does not um, does not harm the cells in, in the body, but it's what it harms is the bacteria through the shikimate pathway and we have way more bacteria in our body than we do cells. Yeah. That's a lot of the story. I don't think it's the whole story. And that's right. my book. You know, I have my book toxic legacy where I explain uh, glyphosate's diabolical mechanism of toxicity, which is totally unique to glyphosate. There's no other chemical like it. And that's what makes it a slow kill also. And this is this business of getting into proteins by mistake in place of the coding amino acid glycine. I think that's what it does. And I think that's how it disturbs enzymes. And that's how it disturbs EPSP synthase. That's the enzyme in the shikimate pathway that glyphosate famously disrupts. And you're mm. right, it messes up the gut microbes. And that's a, a very bad problem uh, for, for a human because we d- depend a whole lot on those microbes to supply us with all kinds of stuff that they didn't really realize the extent to which those microbes were important to us until they started misbehaving, you know, and once now mm. we have all these papers on the gut coming out because, oh, they're ta- so many people are saying all disease, you know, many diseases can be traced back to gut dysbiosis. And uh, that's all true. And glyphosate causes gut, gut dysbiosis by killing off preferentially the benefit beneficial microbes. And, and, and so Stephanie, how would you define gut dysbiosis for people? Yeah, it's basically an imbalance in the gut microbes that certain beneficial ones uh, get clobbered by the glyphosate. And so they become, there's fewer of them. And then that leaves a vacuum and then the uh, pathogens get get a foothold and they start growing more pathogens. And Mm -hmm. so you get Mm an increase in pathogenic forms of bacteria, or even the ones that wouldn't normally be, be pathogens become pathogens because they behave differently in the presence of glyphosate. And that's because glyphosate's Uh messing up their enzymes. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And then you get inflammation, you get, you know, immune cells come in and start trying to clear those pathogens and, and then you get inflammatory damage and that can lead to, and of course you get you know, Crohn's disease and, and uh, inflammatory bowel disease is basically the Crohn's disease or uh, uh, colitis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those two diseases are going up dramatically exactly in the step of the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. That's one of the, uh, plots in Nancy Swanson's paper. Nancy Swanson was a friend of mine. And she's a, her first paper was published in 2014, together with okay. some colleagues. And it has like 26 figures in there. And many of those figures have to do with exact correlations between the rise in glyphosate usage and the rise in some disease. And she's got a whole bunch of diseases in there. It's quite striking. It's really terrifying, actually, I think. Wow. And then you add vaccines, you know, all the childhood know, vaccines in, and it's like, oh, it's a wonder there's any child around that's healthy. I know. Right now. I, I know. It's, it, you know, and, and even Bobby Kennedy says too, it's, and I've said the same thing and, and probably you, I mean, we didn't know 
when we were kids, we didn't know anybody with peanut allergies or I didn't know anyone with autism or chronic illnesses. You just. It's really frustrating. Yes. And now even today, now when you invite a few couples over for dinner, you know, somebody's got gluten intolerance and somebody else can't eat peanuts and then and somebody else won't eat any dairy. You know, it's just like, I know. you don't know what to serve for dinner. You know? <laughs> know. Like, Maybe that's why I stopped entertaining. <laughs> Yeah, it really becomes difficult. You never had to worry about if anybody had any allergies. You know, you just assumed everybody could eat everything back back when I was. I know. Yeah, exactly. And 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 it's so preventable. That's what. It's frustrating. It really is. I mean, the gluten intolerance is a no brainer in my opinion because the wheat is sprayed with glyphosate. They've shown there's lots of glyphosate in the wheat products, like the bread and the cookies, and then. the glyphosate messes up the way uh, the metabolism of the gluten, and that's because it messes up the eat the bacteria, the lactobacillus that have all kinds of specialized enzymes that help us digest gluten. Right. And then you have these gluten fragments that don't get digested, and those become allergenic. The immune cells don't like to see a sequence of amino acids that's not a human protein. They're like, wait, this is foreign, you know, attack. Right. So you get the gluten intolerance. It's very well, and and I, I think certain. there's. There's another factor to that. Um, I did a podcast episode. This was really early on when I think we had first talked about glyphosate with um, uh, Azure. I can't think of his name right now, but the owner of Azure Standard. And um, he was talking about how how the wheat had been hybridized to be shorter Mm -hmm. because it Mm -hmm. used to be tall and it would it would um, break um, Mm -hmm. and, and. uh, so it was shorter and, and it was, uh, so shorter and I think faster. And mm-hmm. there was one pro, uh, amino acid, I think it was glycine that didn't get fully, uh, I don't know the word to use, but you know, it, it, it wasn't fully there as it should be. And that mm. was part of also oh, what the gluten intolerance was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gluten has a lot of proline in it. And proline is a difficult um, amino acid to deal with. Um, It has to have special enzymes. Uh, It's an unusual amino acid and has special enzymes uh, to break it down. And those enzymes are produced by the um, lactobacillus, which are getting clobbered by glyphosate. So that's what causes the gluten to be difficult. Both casein and gluten, those two uh, proteins, which a lot of people have sensitivities to, casein is milk. Mm -hmm. Both of them have high levels of proline. And Proline's a fascinating mm. amino acid, and I could write a whole book about proline at this point. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's the uh, that's the problem there. So they have to eat foods that have are low in proline because of that impairment of those bacteria to be able to help out with the digestion of it. Oh, interesting. Because I know a lot of people can eat wheat uh, without a problem from Italy. I've heard that so many people. I got I got email from people when I first I wrote a paper with Anthony Samsel on glyphosate linking it to gluten intolerance. One of my first papers on glyphosate was that, mm-hmm. and I got email from people saying, "Hey, you know, I have a gluten intolerance problem, but when I go to Europe, I can eat the bread no problem." So mm-hmm. it's interesting. I just, I mean, I know that the European foods have a lot less glyphosate. Canada did a study in which they. Um, measured the amount of glyphosate in various foods that were either Canadian or imports from U.S. or from Mexico or from Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they found a consistent story that the Canadian food and the U.S. food were high, had significantly higher levels on average of glyphosate than the than either Mexico or Europe. And Mexico came out pretty much in line with Europe. So that's kind of interesting. Mexico uses a lot less. And in fact, Mexico was moving towards abandoning glyphosate. Right. I know. Which is really I, exciting. So they haven't they haven't uh, nixed it completely, though. Well, they've been trying to, and I think at one time they were saying they would be doing it by 2023. Right. I can't quite remember the dates, but I know it's been pushed out a bit. But the U.S. has been fighting very hard to say to them, "No, no, no, you can't do that. That's a terrible idea." Yeah, right. And uh, we're fighting back, and they're and they're pushing back against us. So far, we haven't convinced them not to do it, but I think it's getting delayed. Do you think it helps like with breads like um, sourdough because I, you know, because of the fermentation process? Um, what helps? It, well, just be able oh, you to, mean to make sourdough bread would yeah, make it um, safer to eat. Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I love sourdough bread. That's I do my too. favorite. I always get organic sourdough. I love it. I do too. And I also, a lot of the, um, well, I, gr- I make, I grind, I've got a grinder, <clears throat> electric grinder. So I grind a lot of of, of grains and, mm-hmm. um, That's and I nice. can, <clears throat> it is, and I, I can get, um, heritage wheat. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's also important. 
because uh, the, as you said, the wheat has been manipulated. You know, right. Not necessarily, it's not GMO, but it has right. been manipulated. And strains have been selected that are more convenient to grow and maybe right. higher yield. Um, and then that's, of course, different. So we don't know whether it's the change in the actual content of the wheat or whether it's just the contaminants. My personal feeling is that the glyphosate is the biggest problem with the wheat. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, yeah, definitely both. I'll, I'll put a link in, in our, uh, in the show notes to that podcast episode. Cause it, it was yeah, quite great. interesting. He was really knowledgeable and, uh, and, and we talked about glyphosate and we talked about, you know, what, what's happened over the years with the wheat and how it's uh, created a problem. Um, so I'll, I'll link to that. Uh, let's see, write that down here. If I don't write things mm -hmm. down, you know what happens. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> don't have the memory I used to have. Uh, I know what you mean. <laughs> especially, I actually used to be known for, you know, because when I had my aromatherapy company, I had all of my vendors, all of my customers, all of my formulas, everything was in my head and I could mm -hmm. access it immediately. And then when I had my thyroid crash in 2001, it was like, oh, that was the end of all that. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get older, isn't it? I keep worrying. I, so far, my brain seems to be working pretty well, but I hope it stays that way. Uh, yeah, well, like we were talking about, you know, my brain fog and, and these last these last few days here without brain fog has just been, oh, my God. <laughs> It's amazing. I'm like, oh my God, That's I can wonderful. really think. I can <laughs> I can explain the brain fog and we should maybe get into that because I think it's connected to hydrogen. A lot of people have brain fog. Hydrogen sulfide gas. And that's a very interesting story that also connects to deuterium. So that well, would be go for it then. Into. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> See yeah. what I can do with that. It's quite, quite fascinating. I, I, I found a uh, paper. It's going to get a bit of a detour here, but we'll get back to it. I found a paper that was written a long time ago. I think maybe 19... 80s okay and maybe maybe even 1960s it was very old um it's the only paper i've been able to find on this topic but it uh, but it did the trick it was looking at uh gut microbes um producing hydrogen gas h2 right okay mm -hmm. some of the microbes make hydrogen gas and that's part of the gases that are in your gut when you get bloating and stuff like that okay and and they found out that that hydrogen gas that the microbes made was severely depleted in deuterium it had only 30 oh. parts per million compared to 155 or 156 in seawater, right? So 30 okay. parts per million, tremendous uh, reduction. Yeah, that doesn't seem like much at all. I mean, 30 parts per million, I, how, how can you even find that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, well, it's a really... reduction of a factor of five, right? From 150. Oh, what is it? 30. <laughs> I'm not doing my math right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they can figure it out. Yeah, three fives or 15. Yes, yeah, a factor of five reduction mm -hmm. and so so that right. hydrogen gas becomes very valuable if you believe that low deuterium is useful right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so what happens and you know people understand that the gut microbes make gases you have the methane gas you have a hydrogen sulfide gas which you're going to get to in a moment all of okay. those gases right and they can cause that bloating and discomfort you know mm -hmm. and um and we have a lot of problems with bloating today and mm -hmm. i think the reason is because the enzymes that bring that gas back into the body as organic molecules are broken by glyphosate right. and, and that's the dehydrogenases. So there's a whole bunch of enzymes called dehydrogenases. They take hydrogen out of things, right? Dehydrogenases. Okay. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and they make water, they take the hydrogen out and they make water or they okay. make actually, they, they usually they, they can make water, but most of them, I think actually stick the hydrogen onto a carrier molecule called NAD. Mm -hmm. nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide that's actually from niacin that guy carries around a hydrogen atom on its back and that hydrogen atom almost always is going to be low unlikely to be deuterium by the way the whole system works the enzymes that put that hydrogen there know how to ignore how to not put deuterium there they have special skills mm -hmm. and that has to do with uh, biophysics and water water wires it's really fascinating but i won't go into that these enzymes are really sophisticated and they know how to how to choose hydrogen over deuterium. But the fact is the hydrogen gas is already almost guaranteed not to be deuterium. Okay. And so there's microbes that take carbon dioxide and hydrogen gas and they make ethane out of that. And mm. they've been so they, they they get rid of the oxygen and they put four hydrogens on the carbon. They have methane. Methane is CH4. Okay. Carbon dioxide, of course, is CO2. So you take off the right. two oxygens, you put on 
four hydrogens, two hydrogen molecules. And now you've got uh, methane, which is very low in deuterium because it came from the hydrogen gas that was also low in deuterium. So you sort of trace those along, right, with each step. The methane then gets converted to methanol. The methanol gets converted to formaldehyde. The formaldehyde gets converted Ooh. to formate. And the formate gets converted to carbon dioxide. So you come all the way back around again, right? Wow. This is all this happens in the gut, wow. uh, this chain. And each okay. one of those things that's converting is, is a dehydrogenase. It takes the hydrogen off and it puts it on NAD. So the NAD okay. is collecting up these hydrogens, right, that are attached to it. And they mm -hmm. can hang on to it for a long time. Um, those hydrogens came from that hydrogen gas, so they're going to be low in deuterium. And the body really pays attention to those hydrogens to try to get them into the mitochondria. Ultimately, they're fed to the mitochondria. And as protons, the H's are taken back off, put into the mitochondrial intermembrane space as protons that are not deuterons. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> so yes. It's quite clever. You take the wow. hydrogen gas and then you make methane and you eventually dump it onto the NAD. So you go around and around and around. You go from um, methane down to formate and down to carbon dioxide. And then you come back again, carbon dioxide, pick, it, pick up another couple of hydrogen atoms, hydrogen molecules, and make some more methane. So you're going around and around. It's it looks a like circular, a useless cycle. Yeah. But okay. all along the way, you're pulling out that hydrogen gas and turning it into an H attached to an NAD. And that's the important thing that's happening. So, okay, Stephanie, I've got a question. Now, is there any link or any relationship to, because when you talk about the hydrogen gas, I, okay, I'll be, I'll be very transparent here. I was having just horrible digestive gas for months and months. Mm. And I started taking digestive enzymes mm -hmm. and it's all gone away completely. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, yeah, my whole digestive tract is so much better. So I'm wondering if there's some kind of a relationship you know, something that was going on in my digestion, right, that was creating a lot of gas. Um, mm -hmm. But then when I started taking the enzymes, that all resolved. So I'm just wondering if there's some kind of relationship between taking digestive enzymes and what you're talking about, or I don't know. But yeah, there's enzymes that are disrupted by glyphosate. And that's why I think this is not working well. And that's why the gases pile up, because the microbes that are supposed to take the gas back in to organic matter. And it, actually, they also save it off as useful molecules like acetate. And uh, the hydrogen sulfide, we kind of got distracted. We haven't got back to the hydrogen sulfide yet, but there are um, enzymes that can take sulfate and okay. reduce it down to hydrogen sulfide, but they stick the sulfur onto an organic matter to make methionine. So ah. there's what's called a simulatory sulfate reduction or, or simulatory sulfite reduction. Reductase is an enzyme that is involved in making methionine from sulfate. Okay. But then those enzymes are, are very sensitive to glyphosate. They have what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif, which is a, uh, a place in the enzyme where there are highly conserved glycine residues at a spot where it binds phosphate. That's a, I talk about that in my book, but it's a uh, very, uh, a description of a type of enzyme that I expect to be sensitive to glyphosate. And these um, enzymes that uh, make the methionine have that problem. They're called flavoproteins. There's a whole class of enzymes called flavoproteins that have this characteristic feature of binding to phosphate at a place where glycine is highly, highly conserved. So the glycine is getting substituted by glyphosate and that's messing up the enzyme's ability to bind to phosphate. And that's wrecking the enzyme's capabilities, which then uh, causes the reaction not to happen, which then causes the, the symptoms. So the methionine can't be made but instead, there are these other bacteria um, that can reduce sulfate to sulfide, basically hydrogen sulfide gas. And of course, the gas can escape because it's just the gas, it's very light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you basically waste the sulfur. You, don't, you aren't able to capture that sulfur and use it to make methionine because it's being converted to hydrogen sulfide gas instead by this other enzyme that's not sensitive to glyphosate. And so you have these bilophila wadsworthia is a microbe that is very good at taking <laughs> sulfate and turning it into hydrogen sulfide gas. Well, what was that again? <laughs> bilophilia, which means loving bile, loving uh, bile acid. Okay. <laughs> wadsworthia. Wadsworth is the name of the guy who found this. So that's a, kind of a mouthful. but <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Yeah. Those microbes are actually, I mean, they're they're prominent in the gut in association with things like autism and um, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. They're overrepresented. Oh. Uh, and so um, 
And so, but that's because the ones that would be converting the sulfate into methionine are broken. So you get this hydrogen sulfide gas building up. The hydrogen sulfide gas probably is low in deuterium. Mm. When you trace back where it comes from, it's probably low in deuterium. So it's actually valuable if you can use it. But mm. yeah, but it, it moves around very easily through the body, it floats up to the brain and causes brain fog. So that's how you can get brain fog from the hydrogen sulfide gas being produced by these um, by these microbes that are overgrown. They're flourishing in the gut because the ones that would make the methionine are not working. And it's been shown experimentally that glyphosate suppresses methionine synthesis in, in plants, um, as well as the enzymes involved with methionine synthesis in E. coli. I've found papers that show this. Glyphosate messes up the aromatic amino acids, which come out of that shikimate pathway. And that's mm-hmm. a very important problem. But it also suppresses the synthesis of methionine in the gut. We can't make any of those amino acids. We can't, our, our cells can't make methionine. They can't make the aromatics. We depend on our gut microbes to help us with the supply of those critical nutrients. Got it. Now, what the, like, I mean, I do eat pretty much all organic and have for decades. Um, yeah, so you should have low gly- glyphosate. I, I don't know whether you, uh, hopefully you live also in a place that's pretty unlikely to have glyphosate in yes, the air, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And I've been yeah. doing things like activated charcoal and just to, yeah, you know, uh-huh. get the, because with all the chemtrails, we even here out in the boonies, there's some yeah. days I look up and I go, oh, chemtrails. <laughs> do you do you live in an area where there's a lot of forest? Yep. Mm-hmm. Is there a forestry industry there? Uh, yes. Aha, mm-hmm. uh-huh. that could be your problem. Oh. Uh... They use a lot of glyphosate. I'm actually really, uh, I've been aware of that for a long time. And I've actually been in touch with people who, um, in Canada, who live in areas where glyphosate is heavily used in the forestry industry. And, um, and I think it's causing a lot of problems. I think people can end up with glyphosate in the air from, from the spraying that they do in the forest. They like to kill off the hardwood trees um, and sort of encourage the um, conifers to grow because those are, uh-huh. they grow faster and right. they get more wood. Right. So they do a lot of, they use a lot of glyphosate in the forest industry. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm going to have to do a little research on that. <laughs> yeah, I hope it's not true, but I, it's a, uh, yeah, that's a big problem, I think, in Canada, especially, but mm-hmm. also in America on the mm-hmm. West Coast. Interesting. So, so Stephanie, what can we do then uh, to reverse some of this damage? Do you, have you gotten that far? <laughs> <laughs> One thing about deuterium that's fun is that the foods contain different amounts. And so actually the, there are foods that are low in deuterium and they are mostly fats and especially animal-based fats, but also coconut uh, oil uh-huh. and um, avocado oil and um, uh, grass-fed beef. Uh, butter has very low deuterium and ghee. So uh, it's, it's interesting. It's the fats uh, in general that have lower and there's even... You know, algae uh-huh. can produce fats like chlorella. A lot of people yep, have to take yep. chlorella. Mm-hmm. That's a really healthy fat that has low deuterium. So eating a high fat diet is eating a low deuterium diet, which is quite interesting. Oh, interesting. But now it sounds like from what you've said, that wouldn't include like the seed oils though, like uh, sesame, sunflower, canola. Right. I don't think so. There's only certain fats and it depends on what, how the, fat is made because it has to be made with enzymes that know how to ignore deuterium, right? So it depends on how those fats are made. And, um, and I remember actually reading about the chlorella that they have, um, they use NADPH that comes from uh, enzymes that know how to ignore, how to suppress uh, selection of deuterium. So they end up with, it depends on where that H comes from that's sitting on the NAD um, as far as how low the deuterium is going to be, but the uh, fats are made from the H's that are on NADPH. So if those H's came from a process that involved you know, selecting for hydrogen, they're going to be low deuterium. And the fats mm. usually are, but actually the grass-fed beef has lower deuterium than the um, CAFO beef, the ones that are exposed to lots of glyphosate. They have a higher deuterium in their fats. Oh, interesting. Now, are there are there other foods that are high in deuterium? Well, so I guess it's the sugars that have the highest um, deuterium. Um, oh. Cottage cheese, I remember, was one that was actually pretty low. It was in the middle somewhere, but it was pretty low. Um, okay. There haven't been many tests. I haven't been able to find a lot of data on which foods, what the foods have. So I don't have a good sense. But mostly I think the carbs, like the flours and the sugars, are mm-hmm. high in deuterium. Okay. And then the fats are, are low. So there's a tendency. So if you want to have a low deuterium diet, you want to eat a lot of fats. 
and especially animal-based fats. But also coconut oil, I think, came out really good. Mm -hmm. That's good. I use a lot of coconut oil and avocado oil. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, those so two oils, I think, especially. Yeah, it's more saturated fats, actually. Saturated fats are more likely to have low bacterium than unsaturated fats. So it sounds like for people who are into like keto and um, things yes, like right. that, that's probably. That's uh, good. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now the other thing is water can have a very wide range of deuterium. I said seawater on, has 156. I think that's the right number okay. uh, parts per million. Mm -hmm. um, but glacier water can get down below 90 oh. parts per million, which is really interesting. The water that melts off of the glacier. I wonder so why from that Antarctica, is. For example. Well, it's because the ice traps the deuterium, just like the gelled water traps the deuterium, the ice oh, traps it. And so um, the other thing is the water, rainwater at the equator has more deuterium than rainwater in the north, because as the raindrop is coming down in the hot air, more of it evaporates. And the water that leaves the raindrop has less deuterium because the deuterium stays with the liquid phase. So that's the same thing with the hydrogen gas that the microbes are making. If it, the liquid phase is going to have more deuterium and the gas phase has less. Uh-huh. Interesting. <laughs> so, the, so the water at the equator, the rainwater is going to be high in deuterium compared to the rainwater up north. Interesting. And so I, that's I, a, yeah, that's interesting things about deuterium. Of course, glyphosate, of course, eating certified organic, I think is probably the best thing you can do for your health in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, if it's local, it doesn't have to be, I mean, right, I, local, lot, if you know that they're not using glyphosate, yeah. right, exactly. Local yeah. farmers are great if they can assure you they're not using glyphosate on their crops. Right. Like the, the feed that I get for my chickens, um, mm -hmm. it's not certified, but the, <laughs> the farmer, he's so funny. He, he said he had it tested. This was a couple of years ago and he, for like 400 and some chemicals. And he said there was nothing. And he said, oh, his, he said his ancestors were too cheap to use pesticides. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Well, I wish more farmers were like that. <laughs> Lucky us that they were too cheap. Yes. Um, and then of course I like a high sulfur diet too. I think. Right. You've talked about really sulfur important. before. Yeah. Why don't yeah, you really talk about that? The, uh, well, that's the sulfate, right? The sulfate is what gels the water. So when you have an insufficient sulfate, um, you could have an insufficient sulfate in your, um, in your gelled water, which won't, which won't gel as well. And so you'll have more deuterium in the fluid blood because it's not being trapped in the gel, not, not as much as being tra trapped in the gel. So you mm. want to have a lot of sulfate in order to, to make the gelled water. And actually, uh, that sulfate is very interesting with autism. And I, I'm sure I've talked to you about this before, but I recognized the problem with autism early on. Before I even knew about glyphosate, I, could, I, I learned that the autistic kids had a problem with sulfate. There was a, a woman named Rosemary Waring who had done uh, research on, she, had a, she uh, helped a bunch of autistic kids back in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And she became, a, she did some measures from their urine and became aware that they had a sulfate problem. They actually secrete, they excrete sulfate in their urine and they have low sulfate in their blood, the, the autistic kids. And I mm -hmm. think the problem is with the enzymes that add sulfate to um, carrier molecules. So there's a whole bunch of um, molecules that have what are called carbon rings, like the benzene ring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, the ring of carbons. And those molecules tend to be, um, fat soluble not water soluble and oh. so uh, the liver actually uh, has various ways of sticking things onto them to make them more water soluble so that you can just throw them out into the blood and they can go out through the kidneys right mm -hmm. it's a way to get rid of them because they can be toxic and so um so there's a bunch of um, enzymes called sulfotransferases that attach sulfate to these molecules to make them more water soluble and that's done not just for these um toxic hydrophobic compounds or molecules, but also for many natural um, molecules that are extremely important for our health. I like um, basically two big classes. And one of them is the aromatic amino acids. Those amino acids also have these rings and then derived from them are all the neurotransmitters and the thyroid hormone. And they also have these rings mm -hmm. and they also are attached to sulfate to be shipped around. Mm -hmm. So, and so they, so the aromatics need uh, sulfate to be shipped around, and the and their, and their descendants, which are the uh, neurotransmitters, and cholesterol is the other one, the whole sterile class, which is cholesterol, vitamin D, the uh, all the sex hormones, cortisol, mm -hmm. all of those are in that sterile class, 
Um, cholesterol, importantly, needs sulfate. I think that's a very critical way in which cholesterol is transported around the body. And I think that the problem with heart disease and the sort of statin drugs, you know, high cholesterol, is really a problem of an inability to add sulfate to cholesterol to make it water soluble. It makes it much, much easier to ship it around. And so you end up with a systemic deficiency in all these carrier molecules, as well as a systemic deficiency in sulfate. If you can't stick the sulfate on, take the sulfate off. And the enzymes that do that are disrupted by glyphosate. So I think that's a key central issue with the sulfate, which also is an issue with the deuterium because you end up with insufficient sulfate, insufficient gelled water, too much deuterium in the blood, and then it goes south from there. Interesting. Now, I just, have you heard of bamboo salt? No. Okay. So this is something I just learned about this weekend and I got some, it takes like months to make, but it's high in sulfur. Mm -hmm. And it, I'm wondering now if it has a role in gelling water, because Mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that, um, and you can just you can put it on your food, you can put it in your coffee and it, it alkalinizes your coffee mm-hmm. and you can just take like a pinch and put it inside of your mouth and let it dissolve. Mm. But what I found is that when I'm using that, cause some days I kind of forget, but that I don't pee as much. So the cells, mm. I, I'm assuming that the cells are hydrating more. Could be, could be. Yeah. Right. Because the water's just not, the water isn't just going right. through me. And now you're talking about sulfur and I know it's high in sulfur and I'm wondering, hmm, maybe yes, it has it a role. It's a good source of sulfur. Yeah. And I totally think people should be eating more sulfur containing foods. And I know a lot of people have sensitivities to sulfur, which I think goes back to glyphosate because glyphosate messes up those enzymes. You get the hydrogen sulfide gas. I could see why people could have sensitivity to sulfur if they're being exposed to glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And now I know you can get like uh, sulfur uh, MSM. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Capsules. Um, yeah. You can get crystals. What what foods are high in sulfur? Um, cruciferous vegetables are a real favorite of mine. Um, so broccoli, broccoli ca- cabbage, uh, cauliflower. Exactly. Yes. And that's right. <clears throat> and then also onions and garlic. Onions and mm-hmm. garlics are, I love them. Mm-hmm. We use a ton of them in our cooking. Mm-hmm. They're high in sulfur. Mm-hmm. And then eggs um, and meat, uh, mm-hmm. animal-based food, seafood. Uh, okay. They're all high in sulfur. Okay. So, um, so we eat a lot of those things. I really work hard on having a high sulfur diet actually mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's beneficial because again, that's how you're going to get the gel, the gelled water that's going to trap the deuterium. So that works directly to help the deuterium problem. So if you're drinking structured water, then that would also help to right. get rid of the yes. excess deuterium. Uh-huh. Another, yeah. hmm, interesting. Another benefit. Yeah, there was a water. study that I actually reviewed this study and it was done by um, someone who wasn't, um, you know, he was a person who was passionate about autism and actually did a, uh, a study where he actually uh, reached out to a bunch of parents of autistic kids and parents of, of regular kids. And he tested, and he tested, he found, uh, he tested the water uh, supply mm-hmm. uh, of the different states. He picked a certain set of states that were characteristic it was a long a lot of effort you know to get all these questionnaires filled out um Mm -hmm. getting information about the kids status whether they had autism or not and then what kind of water they drank did they drink the municipal water did Mm -hmm. they drink Mm -hmm. bottled water if it was bottled what kind of bottled water and then he measured the amount of sulfur in all these different waters you know he found some mineral spring waters that were high in sulfur and then he actually determined that he found a statistically significant uh, correlation uh, between autism and water that has less sulfur, which is really amazing to me that he could oh, do that. Interesting. Just the wow. water alone with the sulfur. Yeah. So I think drinking water that contains sulfur is a good idea. And that's, you know, these mineral waters, like when, I think that the one from Italy, what is it? Um, the sparkling water from Italy. Um, uh-huh. Oh, I don't um, remember. Yeah, I can picture it now. But yeah, Pellegrino, Pellegrino, yeah, Pellegrino had high sulfur, and um, so it's a good water to drink. Now, Stephanie, when you use a a, a filter, do you know if it that takes sulfur out or does the sulfur? It still... does. Yes, oh. it takes out the sulfur. Oh, yeah, that sucks. reverse osmosis. I know that's really bad, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's you're really stuck with um. Wow. The water's been contaminated. It's so difficult to know what to do because you take out the good with the bad. And then you, you have a problem. So, and you can uh, use salts too that are high in sulfur. We have some here in Hawaii, natural mm-hmm. sea salts that are high in sulfur. 
I, I don't use a regular table salt anymore. You probably oh, don't either. God, I haven't for, yeah. I can't even remember yes. when the last time I did. In fact, I, I have a little <laughs> container in my purse of Himalayan salt for. There you go. Yeah, I'm that's out. really good. The Himalayan salt has, is high sulfur. So you can get sulfur from your salts, which is really a great thing because you use salt anyway, you know. Right. So that's another way to increase your sulfur. I love garlic and garlic has a fantastic form of sulfur in it that's extremely useful for the body. Mm-hmm. I'm still using onions and, and garlic from the garden last year. That's really nice. I <laughs> know. Wonderful. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm doing different, but it's it's keeping really well. It's yeah. still, I, I've never had it keep quite this long. Yeah. And of course, I always have to talk about fulvic acid, humic acid, um, mm-hmm. sauerkraut juice. There was this study on the cows. I like to mention that. This is for glyphosate. as to help okay. you remove the glyphosate. Um, there was a study on the cows that were sick. They had high glyphosate in their urine. They fed them bentonite clay, fulvic mm-hmm. acid, humic acid, um, charcoal, and mm-hmm. um, sauerkraut juice, which is a really strange one, but they knew to feed them sauerkraut juice. So I think fermented foods um, mm-hmm. are good mm-hmm. for potentially providing you with microbes that can break down glyphosate, which would be awesome. So I think people who have naturally in their gut microbes that have the ability to break that CP bond, they're going to be better off than people who don't. And most mm-hmm. of the microbes can't, can't break down glyphosate because it has that tricky uh, carbon phosphorus bond that's very difficult to break down. Hmm. But so humic fulvic acid works. That's good to know because I do take it every day. Yes, uh, it's just <laughs> a good binder. So I, th- I think the hope is that it would bind to the glyphosate and remove it through the so not get rid of it, you know, but just move it out of your body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that not that getting rid of it? <laughs> well, it's still around, right? It's in, it's in the manure. It's still around. Uh, that's you true. Wanna, you want to break it down. And so breaking it down requires either specialized enzymes from these microbes, and it's only a few of them, or, um, you know, you can break it down with, um, with oxygen, right? Like you could do a superoxide, um, hydrogen peroxide, mm-hmm. uh, carbon dioxide. These are sort of oxidizing agents that can break it down non-enzymatically mm-hmm. and luckily the, uh, chlorine uh, you know that's used in um, purifying the water yep. the water supply mm-hmm. chlorine can break down glyphosate which is really fortunate because they're they're giving it they're putting it in the water to kill the microbes right to make the right. water safe but they're also killing the glyphosate at the same time and that's really fortunate because i think wow. we'd be a lot sicker mm-hmm. if we weren't doing that I didn't know that. That's good to know. Well, I did find out, and I, I, because I remember I had uh, written you and asked you if you knew how, uh, how to get rid of glyphosate in the soil, and um, and I don't know if I wrote you back and told you, but uh, my friend who she had just bought this property and just found out it was sprayed with glyphosate, um, that uh, a company said that they they will spray humic acid, mm. and and then repopulate with beneficial microbes microbes and that's, that's supposed really to work. great that's really great and actually i read that the humic acid and fulvic acid can actually trap enzymes um, that are very sophisticated um, microbes make these really fancy enzymes that have general purpose you know destruction of toxic chemicals mm, that mm-hmm. um, that can potentially break down glyphosate they're trapped in the humic acid so that's also really good uh-huh okay maybe that's because i know i had heard some time ago that there was a bacteria or something that could break down the glyphosate, but I yeah, I well, don't... that's true. There are there are some that can. There's just not many. Acetobacter was one of the ones that I read a a paper that showed that certain species of acetobacter can break it down. That's what makes me think maybe the sauerkraut juice has mm-hmm. certain species of acetobacter that can break it down. There's also Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which can break it down. That's a pathogen that's causing a lot of trouble in the in the hospitals. Right. My guess is that it gets an edge over the others because it can break it down. And then there's cyanobacteria, they can break it down, but they're, they've become a problem, like in the Florida waterways or in the Great Lakes with the, they are at the base of the problem with the blue-green algae and the um, oh, red okay. tide and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. So they, uh, mm-hmm. these microbes are thriving, I think, because they can break down glyphosate and then they're causing, they become pests and even uh, some fungus, you know, mold and whatnot uh, mm-hmm. have, have uh, species that can break down glyphosate. And uh, also pathogenic. So you sort of have a lot of pathogens that are possibly even flourishing in the gut and causing problems because they're helping the host by clearing the glyphosate. So that's kind of a, 
Wow. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Wow. Yes. Interesting, huh? Okay, well, wow, this has been fascinating and the time has just zipped by. Yes. Is there any anything that you'd like to wrap up with that you want to share? Uh, not really. I think we covered a nice territory, um, mm -hmm. some new stuff. And so uh, I hope people will appreciate the deuterium story and get that going because I'd like people to learn enough about deuterium to be, be willing to talk about it themselves. So that right, would be nice if we right. start to see other people talking about deuterium. That would be wonderful. So. Are, are there any publications, books, or anything that you would recommend? Uh, if For deuterium, wanted? it's really yeah. hard. Yeah. No, it's all really um, difficult uh, papers from research literature that are very specific on certain enzymes mm. and whatnot. It's very difficult. I want to write a book on it. Um, I'm hoping I will have the energy to do that at some point. <laughs> I would love to write a book on deuterium. I guess we'll have to wait for your book then. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on your, I'm sure, very long list, like all of our lists are. <laughs> oh, God. Right. <laughs> Especially since time is speeding up. It, it, um, I don't know if I ever said this on, on one of the podcasts, but I was reading that. Oh, no. What was, oh, it was up from Cosmic Disclosure on Gaia. This woman was saying that the earth is actually, the spin is getting, it's slowly speeding up. Slowly mm. speeding up, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> gradually speeding up. And that's why it seems like time is, oh, is speeding up. It's not that it seems that like it is, but it is. Faster. The days are shorter. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. That's really wild. Yeah. So it's not just our imagination. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Interesting thought to end on. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. As yeah, always, you, it's been a joy. Glad to hear you're back uh, Back in business with back in the pink. I know. Yes. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah. So thank you great. so much. I really, really appreciate all your work and your brilliance and just how you share. And um, yeah, you're just a great, great. human being. So thank you oh, so thank much. You. Thank you. Welcome. Remember, everyone, the podcast website is realjanine.com and you can listen to and download episodes there. YouTube is give me a strike again. So I'm not even bothering with YouTube, but uh, Rumble, I definitely can put up all of my episodes on Rumble. And I'm having a little trouble with BitChute. I'm not sure what's going on. So I'm relying on Rumble right now. Please remember to subscribe while you're there or give me a Rumble or whatever you do. I don't pay much attention to these things. Uh, do you know someone who would find Dr. Seneff's conversation interesting, fascinating, useful, and helpful? I'm sure you do. So please share the love. We'd all appreciate it. Before I sign off, I'd like to let you know that I've decided to take the summer off from podcasting. It's been almost 10 years now, and I just want to take time for myself, and I want to do more of my healing work with the genius and some of the other technologies that I have. If you'd like to know more about any of this, or you'd like a session, please email me at janineshh at gmail.com j-a-n-e-a-n-s-h at gmail.com i may do an episode here and there if it seems appropriate but otherwise i'll see you in the fall and please have a good summer and hopefully things won't get worse for the summer hopefully uh, we can enjoy the summer before the s-h-i-t hits the fan again Alrighty, take care and be well.